Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors Show. Today I am sitting down with De- uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth. She is the CEO and founder of Quill Intelligence, former Federal Reserve Insider, and the author of the book Fed Up. Now, of course, if you're watching this channel, you know I talk about the Fed policy a lot and what it's doing. Of course, I'm not an insider, I make a lot of assumptions, accusations. Of course, we try to look at the facts and data. But today we get to sit down with an insider and I'm so excited uh, for this interview. So Danielle, welcome and thank you for joining us. Great to be here. All right. So uh, I've watched you in uh, countless uh, interviews and have a good idea of questions I want to ask. But just for the people that are watching, just give us a quick background on, on uh, maybe kind of who you are and what you're doing. So I uh, graduated from business school, MBA in finance, bright light, big cities, started off on Wall Street in New York. Uh, never thought I'd leave. 9-11 came and went, and the firm that I worked for got bought out by a Swiss investment bank, which was very quiet and boring. Uh, so uh, after 9-11, I met the man of my dreams, moved down to Texas. I had gotten my second master's in journalism at Columbia when I was working on Wall Street. I retired, sold my book of business back to the firm, uh, signed a non-compete, and, um, and just decided to write for a living, and thought that my career was going to be over at that point. And it, some point Warren Buffett called and off I went to Omaha and you're writing really crazy things and controversial and blah, blah, blah. And Richard Fisher called from the Federal Reserve. I ended up working for him for nine years at the Dallas Fed as an advisor and I'm anything but a Fed bureaucrat. So it was an interesting fit. And I enjoyed myself so much. I came out of the Fed and wrote a book for two and a half years called Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. So I suppose you could call that my exit interview. And since then, I have started a a research firm, Quill Intelligence. We publish daily. We publish weekly. We've got retail and institutional subscribers. And I talk a lot. You do talk a lot. And we love hearing it. The public, the the market has decided they like uh, like what you have to say. Now, I'm curious... um, to dig into the Fed. Now, I saw in another interview, I think it was with uh, uh, Patrick Bet David, uh, and you said that you're fiscally conservative um, and that you believe in bringing down the debt in America. Um, and maybe, I'm just curious, is that maybe what happened at the Fed, right? You're fiscally conservative. You weren't agreeing with or just inflate away till no infinity or to infinity? I, I, was, I was never a fan uh, of the Fed enabling uh, Congress to borrow as much as it wants. I, I've... Yeah, I, I listen to the, the, the conventional wisdom is always, well, you can afford it as long as you can service the debt. I, I, don't, buy, I, I don't buy that for a minute. But that is what's happened in the extreme with Uncle Sam. Mm-hmm. And that is if the Fed brings interest rates down to the lowest level in 5,000 years, well, lo and behold, the, the government's going to start running up deficits and debts that it cannot in the end afford and look at where we are today. Yeah, exactly. Great point. And uh, for everybody that's listening right now, make sure you stick around to the end because I am going to ask uh, Danielle what that end game looks like and we're going to try and just uh, make some stabs in the dark at it. So make sure you stick around for that. But back to that point. So being fiscally conservative and seeing them spin to infinity, I could understand that stress. I'm curious just what your viewpoint is just maybe generally on the Fed itself. I mean, from my viewpoint, it seems that... um, they're, they're kind of responsible for a lot of the problems that we have um, through this endless uh, money, inflation, mm-hmm. debasement, et cetera, right? Purchasing power has gone down. Debt levels have gone up. The list goes on. Yeah. 
So uh, back, so so specifically about income inequality, I believe that the Fed policy has been a major factor in the income inequality. Um, do you would you see that? Yeah, I do, and it's not um, it's not only about quantitative easing and injecting liquidity into the system. It's also about indexing, and the whole idea of the Fed putting a floor under markets, which started with Alan Greenspan in 1987, in the, the weeks and months that followed the Black Monday, the crash of 1987, he went so far as to allow the New York Fed markets desk to inform Wall Street bond traders ahead of Fed moves to inject liquidity into the system. So that was kind of when moral hazard was born, when the Fed put was born. And it's just gotten to be bigger and bigger and bigger over the years. But what's come out of this is this idea of don't fight the Fed. And what don't fight the Fed has done is it's fed this huge indexing industry because you don't need to pay for active managements when a monkey or Port, Dave Portnoy, take your choice, can simply <laughs> throw darts at a wall and make tons of money because they own anything and everything and it all goes up. But what's actually happened in the background, you know, the S&P 500 recently hit an all-time high and we exited from the bear market and there were fireworks going off. If you took out the S&P 5, then the stock market was down about 3%. Mm -hmm. So, but to the point of the Fed and income inequality and don't fight the Fed and indexing, if you don't fight the Fed and you put your money in the Vanguard S&P index fund, then you're just going to make sure that the biggest companies get bigger. And when big companies get bigger, what they do when competition comes along is they eat it. And anytime there's an innovator, you, you can speak to the people who, who sold, um, I think it's Instagram, uh, and, and they, 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 they thought they were really wealthy when they sold it to one of the big five, right. uh, but they realized a few years later that instead of multimillionaires, they could have been billionaires, right. but they didn't. But, but what's happened because the Fed makes the biggest companies bigger and because the Fed fosters monopolization of the US economy, it ends up stifling innovation, it ends up killing the ability to be an entrepreneur, and you, you take the, the wind out of the American dream of anybody being able to, to start a business and become successful, because it's much harder to do if you live in a monopolized economy, which is something that the Fed has fed. Yeah, that's such a great point. And to be honest, it's something that's it's a little bit of a different twist than I've actually looked at. Obviously, I see uh, government policy going into a lot of the monopolization, but haven't really thought. And, and of course, the easy flowing money goes into that as well, letting these yeah. big companies, these those, tech companies run, true. It, run at massive losses, right? Like, uh, uh, that's one reason why I think like Warren Buffett's maybe kind of lost it because he's still looking for that value investor. But today, companies aren't about making money. They're no. just about growing. Um, and, right. and that's the thing, you know, if the Fed uh, and its current policies and people, people, people think that zombie corporations are something new, you know, prior to the pandemic, 14% of companies in America were zombie corporations. So the Fed has been fostering, keeping deadwood alive, keeping non-productive entities in the, in the economy. The Fed's had a great track record of doing that for years. Post-COVID, it's popped up to 20% of companies because the Fed's been so aggressive at keeping companies that should go out of business alive by putting more debt on their balance sheet yet. But there's something beyond the zombie uh, 
the danger of creating all these zombies and the fact that it's going to suck productivity out of future growth and hold back the ability to create jobs because you're keeping companies in the industry when if they came out, innovators could enter. But mm -hmm. there's, there, there's something that even goes um, beyond that when, when it comes to zombie corporations. And that's that if you pile on so much more debt onto these companies, pay attention when you read chapter 11 headlines. Pay attention when you see bankruptcy filings today. More often than not, you're seeing companies go straight from filing to liquidation. Mm. And that's the difference that having way too much debt such that you need to file chapter 11 and having so much debt that there's no value that you can carve out in the end that saves jobs. And that is what this current generation, this last iteration of the Fed's hoorah is doing. Yeah. So just to dig into that just for a second. So typically you would file, uh, see a company file for chapter 11, which would give them protection to reorganize. But you're Correct. saying they're not bothering. They're just going straight to liquidation because there's just no hope. There's no hope. And because there's so much more debt than there would have been otherwise had the junk bond market not been kept wide open by the Fed to keep them alive when they otherwise would have had to restructure, you, the, more pot, the, the more debt you pile on, the less value you can extract in the end. Yeah. And that's there's, been my argument. Creditors. Yeah, that's been my argument, you know, with with this whole, you know, just uh, picking out airlines, for example, which I know you have views on the airlines, but you know, everyone's like, oh, we can't let them go bankrupt. And it's like, well, we, we you know, we need to protect the jobs and this and that. And it's like, well, just because they go bankrupt doesn't mean the jobs go away. They just get reorged, right? And they get rid of the debt. Exactly. And, and now they're a lean, mean company that can grow again. But instead, you're saddling them with more debt. That's not like a good thing. But like, yeah, I mean, American Airlines had in one press release, that they were going to be issuing one, $2 trillion of debt. And oh, by the way, on September the 30th, when the bailout expiration ends, they're going to be upping their layoffs from 20 to 25,000 people. Who puts that in the same press release? <laughs> yeah, the nerve of these people. So um, it seems like, you know, I'm not the brightest guy. I didn't, I don't have your pedigree, but it just seems like so obvious to me. And I see comments. I mean, I see five, 10,000 comments a week on my videos. And it seems like people get this. Um, would you say that the Fed policy to do this is they're completely just missing the picture or they know what they're doing, but they're doing it anyway? I think it's the latter. Mm. I, I think that, I, I think that, that Jay Powell has seen the whites of the eyes of how big of a monster this credit is. And he's scared. Um, I, you know, I tell this story all the time. General Electric debt was downgraded. Halloween 2018, 14 days later, junk bond issuance shut down in the United States for 41 days. The collateral backing exchange traded bond funds was trading by appointment only. And there was a huge liquidity issue. And there was the risk that, that systemic risk was going to be unleashed. And that was what brought out the Powell pivot when he realized that so much debt has been created that this, this is possibly worse than the subprime crisis would be because in the aftermath of the subprime crisis, everybody decided that quantitative easing was the way to go. Everybody was lower for longer, whether it became a global phenomenon. And now you have pushing $300 trillion of debt worldwide and a beast that central bankers simply don't feel like they contain. Yeah. I, re I really want to dig into that $300 trillion debt balloon that constantly has this big hole in it. But um, before we do, I just want to jump back into the Fed policy a little bit. So recently, um, 
Fed, Fed Chair Jerome Powell came out and said that he, he did not believe the Fed policy created inequality. And like, <laughs> right? I mean, he, he said that. And then, and then we have Senator Elizabeth Warren um, introduced a bill with a few other people, um, a bill to specifically have the Fed fight inequality. So currently, a Fed policy should be to maintain stable inflation and maximize employment. But apparently that's not good enough now. Now the Fed's going to fight the uh, inequality that they create. Um, with all due <laughs> deference to Senator Warren, I, I couldn't think of a worst way of, of trying to approach the issue of income inequality. If you want to stop the Fed from, from widening the income inequality divide, then just tell them to quit supporting Wall Street in, 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 you know, with, Main, with Main Street as the loser, right. period. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I just, man, again, like I said, it's like, it just seems so obvious to me and you know, the comments that I see, um, to see senators, uh, Maxine Waters and whatever going behind this, I, I, I guess it goes back to that previous question. Do they not know? And, and maybe Maxine Waters and Elizabeth Warren don't. Do they- uh, I would venture to say that Elizabeth Warren completely understands what the Fed is doing and that in a post-COVID world, you know, because of the, 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 the the programs that, that the Fed has laid out that, that and, and this is her thing. She doesn't like the big banks. And yet when the Fed pries open the credit markets and all these companies are rushing to do record levels of bond issuance, sorry, but that is a great pop to the revenue line of these biggest banks. And that is what this policy, this post-pandemic policy has done, along with quantitative easing. I mean, somebody's got to sell the bond, sell the bonds to the Fed. Somebody's going to make money on that. Somebody's going to help these, these companies issue record levels of debt. They're going to make big, fat investment banking fees on that. We wonder, with all these credit loss provisions, why the banks aren't doing worse. Well, it's because the Fed is effectively subsidizing them with policy. That's what Elizabeth Warren should be concerned with. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it just seems so obvious that they're missing it. So it seems like they have to know and, and, and intentionally be doing that. I know you've good, talked good, to quite good, a bit. About good, good, good politics, good optics, all that good BS. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's apparent. Well, it's, it seems apparent that they're really trying to help out the, the buddies, right? And not, not Main Street Joe. But um, I've seen, you know, you've talked quite a bit about the pandemic and you just mentioned it as well. I don't want to dig into uh, the pandemic per se, but, but the economy post-pandemic or, or during pandemic or post-pandemic. And um, what's your view? I, I know we seem to have a V-shaped recovery in the markets, but the economy ain't having no V-shaped recovery, right? right. Uh, I've seen you recently say maybe a W. Uh, maybe it's an L. I don't know. But what do you see about the economy kind of moving forward in this post-pandemic world? Well, I think that, uh, and and I'm, I don't mind being a little bit controversial about this. I think had we had a uniform national mask policy that we the economy would be in a lot better place. It was finally forced on the state of Texas where I live. And lo and behold, we've got the hospitalization rate down. Smaller businesses are reopening. People feel safer going out. It makes a huge difference. And the fact that we had a patchwork approach meant that the biggest spenders in the economy were too frightened to come out of their house. And that's just flat out Gallup polling, non-biased polling. So, Well, they weren't just scared to come out of their house. I live in California and we were mandated. I mean, the businesses were forced to shut down. It wasn't a matter of being scared. Well, no, I'm talking about states that reopened. Right. And when businesses were wide open and come on in, there was, there was, there was too little follow through 
economically speaking, something was missing. And the something that was missing was that the people who have the most money to spend still weren't coming out of their houses because there was no policy mandating that, that you wear a mask. I, I, I just, the, the thing that gets me about masks the most is that it has nothing to do with science. It has to do with economics. And the top 40% of earners in America, the top two quintiles of earners account for 61% of consumption. If you're not gonna convince them to come out, you're dead in the water with trying to reopen an economy. It's just not gonna happen. And lo and behold, it didn't happen. And when you look at spending by zip codes, the highest income zip codes have had the highest degree of small businesses closing. And that's a shame. Because again, had they felt safe going out, Maybe their dry cleaner wouldn't be out of business. Maybe the restaurant down at the corner wouldn't be out of business, but nobody had any continuity. I mean, Angela Merkel, I don't, I don't agree with all of her policies, but she was like, fine, fine. Literally, you, you were fined. And Germany opened back up. So I think that the, to answer your question, the long-term damage to the economy because so many small businesses have been sacrificed because we haven't had strong leadership, it's gonna stay with us for a generation. You can't bring back small businesses overnight. So this is actually going to increase the divide between the oligopolies and the monopolies and the biggest companies and the smallest companies. And it was a policy error that occurred in Washington, DC. And it's a shame. Yeah, you know, I know, uh, as you said, it's controversial. And a lot of times talking about politics is because there's opinion in there, but you can't understand finance without talking about politics because they're so intertwined, right? So uh, I get that. I'm curious, though, because it seems like um, we've seen the the middle class be hollowed out in the United States and, and, and through policy after policy after policy, whatever you want to call it, that a combination of, as we as you've already said, right, indexing and giving free money away and, uh, you know, crony capitalism, regulations, outsourcing, all those things. But it almost seems to me, and again, if you would look at it from politically, like there is a reason why they want the middle class hollowed out. And this almost seemed like a continuation of that because it's, it's the mom and pops. I, I can't go to my local store, but I can go to Walmart. I can't go to my local hardware store, but I can go to Home Depot. Like, it's like purposely targeting the middle class almost. It is. And, and again, had there been a cohesive leadership structure that said, we're going to open up all businesses and we're going to open up all businesses safely, then you wouldn't have seen such destruction in the small business sector. Had the Paycheck Protection Program not just been for W-2 employees, had there been 1099s that, that were able to be included, had they accounted for the fact that if you're a, a restaurant and you're being told that you can only reopen with 25 or 50% capacity, you might want to bend the rules some way somehow to allow the small business to stay both in compliance with regulations in terms of social distancing and not have them lose the loan ability because they're not covering 75% of the, of the loan proceeds with employment when you're not allowing them to employ their employees. So Washington, in my opinion, has completely failed the middle class yet again. And at the same time, they've, you know, they've effectively introduced socialism into the U.S. economy with the stimulus bill. And now that, the, uh, now that 
workers in the economy have gotten a flavor for what 24 extra hundred dollars a month feels like, they're like, I like this universal basic income. Let's get some more of it. So it's it's a dangerous path we've gone down to have signed in legislation without really thinking about it. Legislation that helped people not work and legislation that put hardworking small businesses out of business. Yeah. So um, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, you're talking about multi-generations or a decade to come back. I I think maybe multi-generations because we've seen like restaurant chains that have been passed down through multi-generations that are gone now. Um, And so a lot of that, that's not coming back uh, at all. And also like, uh, you know, um, I I grew up racing dirt bikes, super dangerous. I have metal in every limb of my body. Um, (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's one thing. Three that's boys. I'm happy they didn't take that up, even though one of them flies planes. Anyways, yeah. I mean, it's one. It's one thing that's helped me with investing because I'm not afraid of the risk, but it's also I've made a lot of money. I've lost a lot of money. Uh, but my point is, is my doctor would always tell me stay off of it. So I go there and I'm like, hey doc, you know my ankle kind of hurts. I stay off of it. But like, hey, I got to go to work. I can't just stay off of it. So I right. think, thank you for your opinion. But I understand there's a bigger picture that I have to look at. I can't just look at the medical. And we did kind of look at the medical, uh, but we didn't take in all the other ramifications of that, right? And so, like, uh, you're talking about business shutdown. Well, that changes the, the trajectory of, of, uh, of uh, multi-generations. And even today, right, kids can't go back to school. Parents are quitting their job. You take two or three years off in the middle of your career, you're not getting back onto that same trajectory you're on. And then your kids aren't going to be on the same trajectory, right? That's right. It trickles down and it's a real crying, dying shame. It truly, truly is. Again, I, there was a way to safely reopen the economy. If you look at certain countries in Asia that have been scarred by prior pandemics, they never shut down. The restaurants just said, oh, God, look, it's another pandemic. They got rid of half the restaurants. Excuse me, they got rid of half the tables inside the restaurant. They just put them in the back. They socially distanced. They put their masks on. They did not close their economies down. Yeah. And they haven't had this massive loss to their small business economies that we have. But yet nobody in, in a leadership position, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking about both sides of the aisle. Nobody was strong enough to say, you know what, let's be humble about this. We're not a country that's accustomed to pandemics, but let's look at countries whose economies are not being devastated by the pandemic and maybe emulate what they're doing. There wasn't, there wasn't any logic to it. Sure. Yeah. Well, no, no doubt, no doubt that it could have done been done better. And, and the sad thing is it's continuing to be done bad. Um, so, uh, we'll see, we'll see how that, how that goes on, but, um, jumping back into, uh, the fed stuff, cause, uh, I got my fed insider. So I want to ask you questions there. Um, so, you know, um, they're constantly saying they have this target of 2% inflation mm. and I, and I, and I heard you mention, I think it was on David's podcast, uh, you know, the CPI, which is the consumer price index, what they measure. And it seems to me that, you know, over time they continually change what they're looking at to get the CPI. Mm-hmm. Um, and supposedly they can't get any inflation, but yet Main Street knows that, I mean, for sure, healthcare, education have gone up big time, for sure. Okay. Uh, we know that home prices have gone up, and yep. even my milk and my steak have gone up, and like big time. So oh, yeah. what the heck are they looking at for CPI? They're, they're not looking at what, part of the Fed's problem is, is very basic. They, they, they try and smooth everything out. Well, we don't live in a smooth world, but they try and smooth inflation out by removing inflate by removing food and energy costs. Sorry, but those are pretty important to most families. Yeah. I mean, when I've got all four kids in the house, we drink a gallon of milk a day. I can tell you exactly. 
4.59 down at the store for the gallon. Yeah. Period, and it was 3.99 a few months ago. So, I mean, but the Fed excludes things so that they can keep things that they, they can smooth out their models. In addition to that, the Fed does not use the CPI. The Fed uses PCE, which is an alternative measure of inflation, which uses my biggest pet peeve, which uses Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement rates for the input for healthcare inflation. I can tell you that that's not what I pay for healthcare at all, that my premiums have gone up, that my co-pays have gone up. And that's the largest, the second largest input uh, to inflation. The largest input to inflation is housing. And they impute inflation some way, somehow, that has, again, zip to do with what you're actually spending in the real market. So by understating inflation, which is infuriating, they can hide behind that target and say, as long as it's below 2%, we can keep the printing press going. I seen them say recently, uh, it was one of the uh, smaller Fed bank chairs, I forget which one, but he said they're going to uh, quote, uh, let it run hot, right? So like, they're going to go, instead of like tapering down as they're getting close to the target, he says they're going to run out hot to 2%, which means they're going to way overshoot their goal, which uh, if they're looking at overshooting 2%, what the heck does that mean for us, right? Uh, well, look, they haven't been able to hit their target in the first place. They haven't been able to hit the 2% target in the first place because they know that they have a manipulated metric. So for them to say that they're going to let inflation run hot is simply code word for saying, we're never going to stop printing money. That's, yeah. it, it, if it does creep above 2% by some miracle with, oh, I don't know, all these people losing their jobs, companies losing pricing power, disinflationary pressures building up in the background, but somehow they're going to let inflation run hot. I mean, it's as, it's as if these people live in a different planet. Right. But they need the inflation. They want the inflation, right? I mean- uh. I mean, they, they, I mean, they, not, not we, but they need the inflation uh, in order to keep alive. It almost seems like uh, the minute they stop printing, the whole system collapses, right? And, and they have now so much debt, they have to continue to inflate it away. Is that correct? They want inflation to inflate away the debt. Right. But at the same time, if they truly had higher interest rates, this whole house of debt cards would come just, it would implode under the yeah. weight of whether you're talking about a household's debt service or a corporation's debt service, inability to refinance, or for God's sake, Uncle Sam's, what the interest expense of the country would be if we truly had normalized interest rates as you think about it. Inflation is actually the Fed's worst damn nightmare. But again, when you purposely understate it, then you can hide behind it and ignore asset price inflation and ignore food price inflation and just keep the game going. Right. But I, I saw you mention uh, before, too, that, you know, the, by doing this, the Fed has basically destroyed price discovery. Mm -hmm. Now, um, do you see that as only destroying price discovery in the financial sector or like uh, money or pr price discovery across everything? No, I was really referring more to stocks and bonds. And uh, but but those are those are critical cogs in the system. I mean, there was before the Fed stepped in and intervened in the investment grade bond market and even in the junk bond market as, as a trader, you know, you knew that you the value that you were getting, you could assess the what an investment should be. Every time a price agnostic buyer enters a market, your price discovery shot to hell. Yep. Uh, I mean, if, if you want to extrapolate that to the real world, private equity-backed investors swarmed into certain inland empire, Phoenix. They, 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 they went into certain 
markets in America and bought up prices without even without even ins- inspecting the homes. And lo and behold, today we have home prices that are too high. Mm-hmm. And they, they started this cult of investing in homes. And that is something that I also leave at the foot of the Fed because if money is so cheap for so long, investors are going to find new and exciting and different ways to come in and destroy price discovery in real markets that affect households as well. Yeah. You know, I've definitely been influenced big time in the Austrian school of thought, right? A lot of the Mises stuff and whatnot, and a lot of F.A. Hayek. And, you know, they talk about like uh, money is communication. And I, I kind of believe that, you know, central planning fails. And so um, how do you organize 330 million people? And so through money, money is communication, is price discovery. So how do I know I need to order new supplies? How do I know I need to raise the price of my, of my thing, right? Well, the market can organize all those people when there's price, when there's price in there. But when money is distorted, then nobody knows what the heck to do. Do you right. see that? And, and that, is, that, that is also the case when it comes to uh, companies, the ease with which companies can, can access borrowing as well. And so they end up taking on more debt than they should because they think that they're, and then all of a sudden when you have a recession come along, poof, they're gone. So uh, no, the ability to run businesses at a most, at the most fundamental level to your point uh, is, depends critically on true price discovery. Which is why when, when you look at socialism uh, and you look at the problems it has when they have everything controlled by the government, you lose all of that and then you end up with massive shortages. They don't have enough parts to fix their car. They don't have enough food to eat, right? And it's all because it's been completely captured and controlled. Yep. I, I lived in Venezuela. I lived in Venezuela before socialism came about. So I'm, I'm, I'm a big study of that and I, it, it, nothing scares me any more than the, the armies of modern monetary theorists who think that that we can just print away as much as we want to give everybody everything they need and a pony. And no, it's, it's, it's a very slippery slope. But again, I don't think there's enough of a recognition of the fact that we've taken a step in that direction with the magnitude of the stimulus bill. If you look at the past um, six recessions, yes, if you look at the past six recessions going back to 1970, disposable personal income adjusted for inflation declined by 0.5% during those recessions. Real disposable income, inflation adjusted disposable income in this country has risen by 32% in the current recession on an annualized rate because we've given away so much. But again, we've we've taken socialism for a test drive. And my greatest concern is that there are going to be, there's going to be enough critical mass to keep it going because we have to remember this was signed into law with a Republican in office. He, well, they wanted one trillion instead of three, but yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but uh, I'm, uh, you know, the one thing that I kind of look at, and of course, I mean, I see the same thing and like Bernie Sanders, the first guy running on an open socialist platform, but I don't look at it as like a defining moment. We were capitalism and now we're socialist, right? It's always like a blend. And so it's like, we're part socialist, we're part, capitalist and and people point to you know uh the you know some of the nordic countries and say this the same thing but everyone's kind of like a blend um and it seems like maybe and you can speak to this because you've been there but maybe venezuela was way more socialist china had started to become a little more capitalist right we've seen that um but like you talk about like the the money um going out the stimulus whatnot but, but we already have welfare 
in California, if you were to before pre-pandemic a year ago, if you were to collect all the or all the uh, welfare benefits that are available to you, I think it's like almost forty thousand a year. Mm-hmm. Hawaii was the highest state in the nation. I think it was like sixty thousand a year, and that's no taxes. So like we're already kind of had a socialist nation, I would say, right? We, uh, you know, I, I like to say that the past 10, 15 years, because of Fed policy, because of interest rates at or close to the zero bound, that we've had the stealthiest expansion of the social safety net since FDR was in office. People just haven't paid attention to it. And again, borrowing costs at artificially low levels bring about all manner of sins, and we've seen them. We're more aware of them today, but this has been going on for a very long time. Yeah. Now, um, I know we're, uh, I want to start wrapping it up here, but for everyone who's still listening, I am going to, we're going to dig into the inflation versus deflation debate, uh, or not debate, but the conversation. But before we get into that and, and where this end game is, but before we get into that, um, talking about deflation, you had mentioned how, um, you know, how technology um, has improved things. And now with post pandemic, people working from home, streamlining, things like that. Um, technology has, it is and should be deflationary, right? Uh, we make things easier and it's deflationary. And for me, it seems like deflation is a really good thing. Like, do I want my dollars to buy more things in the future or less, right? Uh, the Keynesian system has taught people that we need inflation. Uh, what do you, where do you sit on that? Do we need inflation or is deflation good? Uh, well, we don't need deflation in our earnings. That's for sure. And that but- but, it, but if, if they purchased more, it's always purchasing power, right? The, the value is always purchasing power, yes. But, but, but you're talking about utopia. You're talking about people with no debt. So, but but that's you, the, always the argument, right? Well, we need inflation because of debt. Well, what if, we didn't, what if we weren't a debt-addicted world? If we weren't a debt-addicted world, then we wouldn't care about deflation at all. I mean, right. that's, that is utopia. I mean, you know, I, I personally... I had a mortgage for a while and I, you know, I lost sleep every single night until the mortgage finally went away. Uh, but not a lot of people think like me and we are a debtor nation and we have ingrained into society the idea of borrowing and living beyond your means. This is one of the things that has to be expunged or our, you know, our fate as a nation is, is at risk. Yeah. So having lived in Venezuela and, and seeing that kind of firsthand, um, where do you see us on that scale? Do you think there's hope? <laughs> well, now I was in Venezuela the summer before Chavez came on and really socialism started to get going. And I will tell you that, um, and again, capitalist, total conservative right here, completely. But I will tell you that the level of poverty that I witnessed and the level of homelessness. And you know, but the time I, I, I spent a few months living there, I left, you know, this is prior to all of the knowledge that I have today about economics. But just as somebody observing what was going on, I knew that the environment was right for somebody to come up and try and help the people. And if you if there's enough suppression that goes on then you end up with a big enough groundswell to bring about a change in an economy where it's not the balance that you describe, but something that swings too far to the left. Yeah. We certainly don't want that. But 
and, and again, that is why I think it's so critical that education reform and reforming the Fed be pursued because ultimately the country pays the price if you allow the income inequality divide to get completely out of hand. And there is concern for that right now. There is talk of mass homelessness in our future. There um, already is mass homelessness. I live in California, man. Well, you live in California. Everywhere. <laughs> Last time I was in Los Angeles, I was, I was, I mean, it's, my, my children were, they'd never seen anything like that. But when, when you're talking about uh, a, a world, a decade in which Fed policy made it for every real estate developer, the only way that they could make the math work in a zero interest rate environment was to build luxury units. So now we've got a bunch of high rises and beautiful condos that nobody can afford. Yeah. And the only, the only thing that, that home builders built for a decade were luxury homes. So there's, there's a, there's an argument to be made for the Fed having made housing out of reach. You don't want to be working in a, in a hospital downtown or in a hotel downtown and have a two-hour commute. Right. You, can't, you, know, you can't find a, an apartment that's a reasonable rent. So, yeah. again, this is not how economies should work. But when you artificially repress interest rates, it's exactly what's happening. Yeah, and I've I've made the argument. I think it's maybe a pin tweet on my on my Twitter th thread. Is uh, you know real economies make real things, mm -hmm. and we've financialized the economy. We so did. that's our that's our big thing is like finance, and uh, everything's gotten expensive. During the real estate boom, what were we doing? I mean, what, what was productive about building all those homes and all those mansions? I mean, we 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 came out on the other there end was, of it. There was for those homes because Sorry. because the price signal was wrong. Of course, the price signal was wrong because because Alan Greenspan right. interest rates too low for too long and subprime mortgage went through the roof right in your backyard. New Century, Countrywide, all those names probably ring a bell. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I I got caught up in that, and unfortunately, it didn't end good for me as well. And that's that's part of the reason why I uh, really dug into gold and learned about hard sound money and found uh, Mike Maloney and Ron Paul, and I started chanting in the Fed with him. And uh, <laughs> here I am, a dozen years later. Um, but getting back into that, um, I, I, I would just say one comment. I didn't have this on my list of uh, things, but you know, I'm, I'm 45. So I'm like old enough to have kind of grown up to like <laughs> be fearful of the USSR. And I remember thinking like communist Russia, like they tell you what you can do for work and what you can't do. And I remember as a kid, like people like coming from Cuba and like risking their life. And I was thinking like, oh, they're swimming in shark infested water to like escape, you know? And I remember the Berlin wall. And I remember these thoughts as a kid, like what if I was like at my friend's house and then I woke up in the morning and the fence was up and I couldn't get back. And like, um, we have all these examples and we have real life examples, Venezuela, right? Um, why do people still think it's a good idea? Uh, well, it's, it's an easy way of thinking. It is. It's, it's the easy way out. And on top of that, you've had a lot of corruption in public education in America such that you have generations of people who feel like they're stuck in this loop and they can't escape poverty. And in many cases, you can't. I mean, I've actually written some ideas down. I've published some papers about education reform. And you know, if you wanna spend taxpayer dollars on something, then make sure a working mom has childcare coverage in the first few 
months of a child's life so that she can rejoin the workforce. Don't make it so prohibitively expensive that she has to drop out and go on welfare because then she's going to be stuck in a loop and her kid's going to be stuck in the same loop. And there, there's make it to where people can work. And yeah. that is what you need to do, I think, to ensure that because working parents teach their kids to get educated. Parents who don't work don't. And that is part of the problem is, is it comes down to the parents and that is part of where financial illiteracy is so rife in this, in this country. Yeah, uh, that's a, that, we could have a whole show on that and I don't, I don't really wanna jump into that, uh, but, but you're absolutely right. It's always about education. Uh, our food that we eat, our medicine that we take, everything always boils down to education. And I think the system has uh, intentionally, we know this, right? We know it's been taken over and it's intentionally created a bunch of victims like, hey, you can't get ahead because you're poor. You can't get ahead because you're black. You can't get ahead because you're a woman. And now when you, when, you, when you become a victim, then you're looking for a savior instead of empowering people, right? And so, I mean, just that little minor shift. And I, and I, I, I just had this thought, this like analogy, and it's like, uh, right, if the state is going to keep us safe from every virus and every sickness and every poorness and every, all these things, well, like, shoot just put me in a cage and give me a steak once a day and like, I'm good, right? Like a lion, I guess. Like I won't roam the plains because that's a hard life on the plains. Sometimes I don't eat. I have other animals and hunters that try to kill me. So just put me in a cage and just give me a steak every day and keep me safe. Like, and that's kind of like where people are at, right? Uh, anyway, uh, that's a whole nother conversation, but let's jump back into this. I know we're going to wrap it up here. So um, I know that you're really bullish on gold. You've talked about that. Um, and, uh, right now, right now we've got one too many speculators in the house, in my opinion. But anyways, yes, it is a long-term hold. One term. What, what do you mean by that? Warren Buffett jumping in? No, I don't think he's. A, I don't think he's a speculator. I, I think Warren Buffett jumping in is a reflection on the fact that there's nothing of value to buy out there right now because prices are so so distorted. No, I, I just mean that it, it it feels like there's been a lot of hedge funds, a lot of fast money has moved into precious metals of late. Um, but you're always going to have that at certain times in. Uh, in economic cycles. Sure. But I, I would say, you know, you, you said long, it's just a long-term hold, right? So we see uh, Fed can continue to print money. Interest rates are probably going to be continue to be held low for a really long time. Why hold uh, bonds that are going negative when I could just go to gold, right? Um, so there's like this. Long Actually, my, my long maturity bonds have treated me very well. I still have those too. So. <laughs> well, you're lucky. I'm talking about like treasuries, you know what I mean? Like treasuries, I'm going to get 1% or half a percent, but uh, you know, adjusted for real inflation or whatever. It's like, it's a, it's a negative. Um, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin? Uh, I think Bitcoin is, is kind of the young hip crowd, hip, hip crowds gold. I think that it is a, a reflection of the disgust with fiat money and, and the fed monetizing the debt. I, I think Bitcoin is, I literally think it's a modern day equivalent to gold, or I think that that's how it's perceived. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from, from what little I understand about it, the economics of mining for Bitcoin are not ideal. And once quantum comes about, I think that that could revolutionize uh, how the world views cryptos. But at the same time, we already know that all major central banks in the world are looking at sovereign cryptocurrencies such that you have to wonder if there are crypto sovereign currencies, what the fate would be then of something that was not sovereign. 
Well, um, you know, Bitcoin is not cryptos. So Bitcoin is a decentralized uh, system that's built on a proof of work on a miner system. Um, so all the other cryptos are centrally controlled and sovereign cryptos will be the same thing, centrally controlled. And we know where centrally controlled things go. They become manipulated and distorted. A decentralized technology that is not able to be manipulated, inflated, distorted, whatever is different. And I always think about uh, F.A. Hayek. He said that there will never be a sound money again until we take the thing out of the hands of the government. And it can't be done in a forceful way. It has to be done in a sly roundabout way. He said that like in the eighties and so foretelling because that's kind of where we're at. Um, so as a Bitcoin person, we believe that um, we want to opt out. We're opting out of the system, right? Getting our money out of the financial system. All right, forget the Fed, forget this, uh, this whole thing. We're just going to take our money. We're going to vote with our money, right? Uh, and we're opting out. Gold is a way it is opting out as well. Um, do you think if enough people opt out with their money, it makes a big difference to the Fed? Are we going to win that war opting out? Oh, I think if you, I mean, if you, if you have enough adoption of anything, then it will win. I mean, that's, that's a rhetorical question. It, 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 it works as long as everybody agrees to it working. Um, yeah. That's a bigger battle to fight. Yeah, I don't see, you know, I don't see a government ever saying, hey, let's just forget the dollar and move to Bitcoin. Like, of course not. They're going to want to control it, manipulate it. But it's like the people's money, you know. And, and again, in Venezuela, like, and they say, well, the, you know, they, they have the army. They can force you to use their currency. Well, no, they can't. Like, if people don't trust the money, they're not going to use it. I'd rather just trade you water for bread, right? Uh, so, it's like, hey, you can have the government money over here and we'll have our, our own money over here maybe. But you're talking about kind of the ultimate end game, right? Because people in Venezuela who had money, they got it out of Venezuela and put it in dollars. Uh, and, and that's kind of what capital flight has always looked like. If you're talking about the end of the dollar, I mean, these are, it's a much bigger discussion. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll tease into that just a little bit. And I know we won't, we don't have time. We're going to wrap it up here in a couple minutes. Um, but so uh, talk about the end game. So we're in a situation now where uh, we have this massive debt bubble, I don't know, 300 trillion, whatever it is, 1.2 quadrillion derivatives, who knows how big that is. Um, and it's constantly trying to deflate and the Fed keeps trying to inflate it. Right. And it seems like uh, each, each correction that we've had is, uh, is the market trying to correct and the Fed just keeps trying to pump it up. Um, we're at a point now where uh, I think you said earlier, like the Fed's kind of between a rock and a hard place. They have to continue to print. If they quit, it's over. So right. what does the end game looks like? I'm thinking that they go until they blow, meaning uh, it's having diminishing returns, right? It's already having less and less effect, but they have no choice and they're going to just go until it doesn't work anymore. Is that what you see? Or what do you think? Are they going to wake up and be, they're going to wake up and pass austerity tomorrow? Like <laughs> how does that work? Look, uh, Jay Powell's first 11 months in office, he tried desperately and he was serious about it, about shrinking the balance sheet, about quantitative tightening, about normalizing interest rates, getting interest rates up to higher levels. I mean, he, he, he was our last great hope uh, because he had the stones to actually try and do it and he failed. And so- Well, he tried, right? He tried, but- then I know, he tried. His, his, again, before the credit market- instructed him that if he kept about the business of tightening, it was going to blow up to kingdom come and that he better back off. Right. He was really making an effort to take us to a better place. And what he learned was that had we stopped after the housing crisis, had we not 
ventured off into quantitative easing. Had we not gone down that rabbit hole, there might have been a way to normalize monetary policy, but there's not. There's not anymore. And in theory, because again, the, the $300 trillion figure that we're throwing about, that's a global number. You have to have for the end game to work, which is a debt jubilee, theoretically, of all sovereign debts, you have to have all the countries agree. And at last check, not all countries in the world are our allies. And that is really the discussion, I think, that brings us to what the end game might or might not look like. And you recall from history that every time a reserve currency status has been lost, there's been a war involved. And that is, that is really my greatest fear. It's that we keep the money printing going. The genesis of every world war and history has always been economical in nature and triggered by something debt related. So again, if, if the kumbaya happy ending is a debt jubilee and all the countries in the world are going to agree to expunge all of their sovereign debts, wipe the slates clean, forgive everything, forget everything, in order for that to work, you have to have every single country agree with the United States. Which I would agree would be almost an impossible task. However, after seeing what's happened with COVID, with every country in the world locking down, all of a sudden I think maybe it could happen. But um, I guess if we, uh, the debt jubilee, that's, that's a big thing. But also like mom and pop's own treasuries, do they want that wiped out as well? No, no, look, there's, there is nothing. Um, it's a re- there's a good reason that debt jubilees are in the Bible. Uh, it, it's not really a feasible modern, uh, I mean, you would have to have a debt jubilee just for the sovereign. And that would be tricky enough, given the fact that mom and pops do own treasuries. And again, the reason I bring up other countries is because other countries own a ton of treasuries. Again, right. everybody would have to agree. And you still wouldn't be able to have a debt jubilee in the private debt markets. That could, it's, it's impossible. Right. So, I'm only talking about one sliver of the pie and not talking about household debt and not talking about corporate debt, not talking about financial debt. Yeah. Yeah. So the sovereigns all get off the hook, but we still have all the debt. Great. <laughs> uh, so what I'm ra- saying. There's no elegant out. No, no, there's not. All right. So last question um, and we'll wrap it up. So um, the question is inflation or deflation. So we have this massive debt bubble and it's continually trying to deflate. Um, the Fed's trying to reinflate. It seems like defaulting on a billion dollars is very easy and the, and the money's gone. To put a billion dollars back in is a lot harder. However, we see, you know, the Green New Deal and they want to spend 30 to 90 trillion. Where's that going to come from? Whatever. So do you think the Fed is able to inflate the balloon faster than it's deflating? Or do we, are they going to, are they going to be able to inflate it for a while and then lose? Or are we going to go into a deflationary period? Like, how do you see that playing out maybe over the next couple years or whatever. So I think right now that the Fed is trying really, really hard to, to engineer inflation. In fact, the Fed is trying so hard to engineer inflation that it's, it's gotten into the business of buying treasury inflation protected securities to push up inflation expectations like by force. So they're, they're trying as hard as they possibly can. However, a million new filers of initial claims every week dictates that you're going to have deflation eventually take hold if there's not some kind of a magnificent economic recovery in the offing, which is going to be very difficult to do given the fact that debt got us in this situation in the first place and debt by definition 
is a drag on economic activity and a drag on the ability of the economy to achieve exit velocity. Right. So I, I think that, that deflation can, in the medium term, rear its ugly head. I see the possibility of there being negative nominal rates dictated by the market, as we've seen in France, Germany, Holland, Switzerland, the UK. So, and that would be very daunting for the Fed because it would, it would obviously reveal that they had lost the battle, the inflation deflation battle. Yeah. So, but again, you can only take so many people out of the workforce, which kills pricing power and hold off deflation for so long. So, which one is it going to be? I think we have deflation first. And I think if we try and keep printing, 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 it depends on who's going to be in Washington. If they ever change the Fed mandate and allow the Fed, instead of buying treasuries in the secondary market, to actually buy treasuries at auction such that the Fed is basically, um, the Fed's liabilities are legal tender, then you can flip the mother of all inflation switches. Hmm. Okay. Just Interesting. kiss your ass goodbye. So you think deflation and then inflation? It depends on what Washington does or doesn't do. If somebody sure. draws the line and prevents the Fed, I mean, opening the Federal Reserve Act is a big deal. Yeah. Um, so, and it's a can of worms. But if, yeah. if the Fed, but look at what they've done with the Treasury and special purpose vehicles and off balance sheet and corporate bonds and municipal bonds and junk bonds. So, Clearly, they can expand the Fed's footprint if they want, the politicians in Washington. Let's see what they do next. Yeah. And that's a great answer. And we'll wrap it up with that answer. And just for everybody listening, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. I always say it'd be so much easier if we did. Um, and so nobody, myself, I never give predictions. And obviously, Danielle is trying to stay away from it as well. And what we do is we look at probabilities, right? Like, mm -hmm. hey, this is probable. It's not a very high probability. Uh, but if these things happen, then it could, right? And so uh, for everybody listening, uh, just try to always think about things in that, in that framework yep. and, and, and pay attention. Watch for the signs. Uh, inflation and deflation are both probable. And then we'll watch the signs to know which ones are coming and right. we'll have to react accordingly, right? You've got, you've, you've got 10, 20% of the workforce, depending on what, agent, what statistical agency is, is telling you what the data is, out of the workforce. I'm sorry, but a monkey could tell you that that's disinflationary. Yeah. Exactly. But money printing eventually is inflationary. And, and you're right. You just have to assign odds. Yeah, great. Okay, we're going to wrap it up with that, Danielle. I appreciate you so much. Uh, I know we've went maybe a little bit over, so I appreciate that. Um, now, of course, you're all over, uh, all over the internet with all your interviews. But maybe do you want to direct people to where they can go follow you for more? Uh, sure. Uh, you can always follow me at Demartino Booth. I'm the most active by far on Twitter. Um, come on over to my YouTube channel as well. And if you really want a great education and, and good entertainment every day, then become a subscriber at Quill Intelligence. We're, we're happy to have you. Great. And I'll link to all that in the show description so everybody can go find that. And with that, we're going to wrap it up. Danielle, thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Take care.